0: loved us. So, Father, we give you praise and honor, and we lift you up, Father. Now, we ask that you would use your word to bring many to salvation, Lord. We ask that your word that is sharper than any double-edged sword that's able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and the discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart would go forward and not come back void. Lord, we pray that your word would do the work. And that ultimately you would be pleased, the sinner would be brought in, and ultimately your name would be made great here in Anacostia and around the world. God, I pray that I would be hidden behind the cross, that I would decrease while you increase, that I would preach to an audience of one. God, have your way in this place and in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. And here begins the reading of God's holy word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man Be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and with his holy angels. So the disciples, up to this point, are spiritually dull. We see that throughout the narrative. And they get who Jesus is, but they don't really get who Jesus is. Is he a miracle worker? Is he a healer? Is he God? Is he the Messiah? The looming question in the background is who is this Jesus? And I love the book of Mark, it's an action packed book, right? And the passage today deals with a turning point. So you got the first half of the book that deals with answering the question, who is Jesus? And then you got the second half that deals with the work that Jesus came to do. And right here is that hinge in chapter eight. Many would say this is the most important chapter and section of the whole Bible. And I don't know about that, but I do know this is the most important question that's asked, who is Jesus? It's the first mention of Jesus asking them directly who he is. It's the first time Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. It's also the first mention of the resurrection and the cross together explicitly. This is a passage of first mentions. And now Jesus, as he turns his attention, going to Jerusalem, he has this laser beam focus as he goes to the cross. But before he gets there, he has to clarify some things with his disciples. He has to make sure that their hearts and their minds are right. So we see also some very interesting things in this gospel concerning fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We see that uh, there's different clues. Now, I don't know if you all have ever seen the show Blue's Clues before. Blue's Clues, any Blue's Clues fan? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's quality TV right there. But with Blue's Clues, they always had this animated puppy named Blue. And Blue would um, ask these questions in order to help solve the mystery. And then he would have like these long, awkward pauses. It was weird, but it worked, right? But in the Old Testament, all of Israel were looking for these Christ-like clues. Christ is the same Greek word for Messiah. It means God's anointed king. And his people longed and they looked for this coming Messiah, especially those who were the religious zealots of the time. Actually, they wanted to see those that oppressed them now become oppressed. And there were these clues, these breadcrumbs, if you would, that were sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament pages of this figure called the Son of Man. This mysterious figure that had like these divine type qualities. Uh, we see that in the book of Daniel. And lastly on the pages, and lastly on this passage, it touches on this final breadcrumb, this clue of this suffering servant. And he's found in Isaiah 53. But amazingly, the Jews never connected this suffering servant to the Messiah. And even today, if you run into Orthodox Jews, they would never associate that Psalm, that that Isaiah 53 passage, with the, the coming Messiah. But why would they? Why would the natural mind believe that the Messiah who can come and defeat oppression and injustice can do it by suffering and dying? You can see how that would sound odd, how that would be discouraging, how that would even be blasphemous in the minds of some of the people, especially coming from the mouth of Jesus the Christ when he uttered these six words. The Son of Man must suffer. So this morning, our goal is to see how that unfolds. And this is how we're going to get there. We'll see three divine perspectives in this passage, that Jesus as the Christ in verse 27 to 29 Jesus as the suffering son of man in verse 31 to 33, and Jesus as Lord in verse 34 to 38. Jesus is the Christ. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to view Christ. There's no fuzzy middle. The wrong view is based on the thoughts and the opinions of man. And the right way is rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. And they are literally miles apart. And God the Father is a good father. Right? His love and his mercy endures forever and through all generations. And he has warned his people in ancient Israel time and time again. And he also warns his people that God's thoughts and his decrees and man's thoughts and their opinions are miles apart. In fact, they are opposite and opposed to one another. And we see this clearly in Isaiah 55 where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So does he make himself clear when he says that there's a difference? Therefore, A.R.C. and guests, knowing and following Jesus will not be a lesson that you figure out on your own. When we try to do this in our own strength, we miss the mark every time. This is something that has to be revealed by the Spirit of God, by the teaching of God's Word. So to make this point, Jesus takes his disciples on a journey to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And his point is clear. Knowing and following him requires a shift from the thoughts and opinions of man to the truth of God's Word. So his point is our point this morning. Knowing and following Jesus requires a shift from the thoughts and opinion of man to the truth of God's Word. The place that he went to in Caesarea Philippi was not by coincidence. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This was a getaway from Galilee where they typically did ministry. So when I worked at BAE Systems in corporate America, every so often they would take us on a weekend getaway. They would do that and they would take away our cell phones, have a change of atmosphere so that the employees can zero in on the lessons that was being taught. So Jesus does this very same thing in Caesarea Philippi. It was an area that was known to be full of idols and religious zealots. And every turn, they tried to connect the dates of when, who, and how the Messiah would be coming. It was a religious hotbed of paranoia and confusion. In other words, it was the perfect place to ask this perfect question, who do people say that I am? Now, you know all along Jesus is setting them up, right? So he asked the right question knowing that he would receive the wrong answer. So if we continue in verse 27, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? This is an important question. This is the right question because up until this point, people were still not clear on his identity. Everyone had an opinion, but no one really had clarity. Family of God, let us not think that this question that Jesus asks of who do people say that I am is irrelevant because it is not. It's relevant today. In fact, we saw just last week during Christmas when we went into the stores that we visited and we heard on the radio the songs that were being played that the opinion of man has Jesus somewhere between the mixture of a fairy tale and a genie who caters to our every wish. For the proof can be found on social media. If you ever wanted to hear the world's opinion and society thoughts on who Jesus is not, check the social media posts. You have the black Jesus. You have the white Jesus. You have the super woke Jesus. Based on the mood of the day determines your savior flavor. And yes, it can sound good and it can look good and it can even appeal to our own sinful desires to create a God in our own image and likeness. So in verse 28, It reveals the popular trending of the day. Some say hashtag John the Baptist, hashtag Elijah, and hashtag one of the prophets. And these opinions on the surface would seem like it makes sense because they didn't see him as the Messiah, but at least they saw him as somebody important. But a closer examination reveals these thoughts were really rooted in fear and grounded on a nationalistic and politically motivated zeal. There's nothing new under the sun. This type of false motive always distorts the real Jesus. It distorts and it minimizes his person and his work. And when we see this uh, in this John the Baptist theory that they they had, it was based on the fear of King Herod. We look at Mark 6.20 early on, it says that Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and believed he had been raised from the dead, distorted and minimized. John was the promised messenger, not the promised Messiah. In the same way, many of the religious zealots, especially those in Caesarea Philippi, were on high alert, but they had a low understanding of Jesus. They thought Jesus, because of the many miracles that he did, was Elijah the expected prophet. Why? Because of the heavy oppression of the Roman government during that time. They looked for Christ to come and overthrow Rome by force. They had this nationalistic zeal without knowledge. And we see an example of that in John 6, 15, where he says, and this was right after feeding of the 5,000, it got real heavy. It said, um, after feeding the 5,000 people, um, they wanted to make him king. Let me read that. It says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. By any means necessary, they were going to crown him king, mind you. And right after that, he would have had a 5,000-man army right there with him. This was a distorted and minimized view of Jesus, and it says he withdrew. And lastly, many labeled him a prophet. And this was true. He once met a woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he told her everything that she had ever done. And any other person that would have been associated with the prophet during that time, that would have been a great honor. That would have been a, a, a high privilege. But Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he explained to his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained how they all pointed to him. The entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus. So he was much more than a prophet. He's the God of the prophets. He did more than speak on God's behalf. He's the living word of God. This is not a compliment but it's an utter failure to recognize who Jesus is. And I want to hit the pause button right there. If you are not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, could there be fears that are keeping you from the real Jesus today? Fear of not being good enough, fear that life is over once you become a Christian? Are there any distortions or confusion that need to be corrected by the truth revealed in God's Word? If so, I pray that you would see Jesus (laughs) with new eyes today. And be sure that Jesus is not the angel Michael. He's not an avatar a Brahmin. He's more than a moral teacher. He's not a lesser God or God's spiritual child. Fam, we've all been there. I was once blind, but now I see. And I know it can be difficult to pick up a Bible and just start anywhere. You may not know where to start, but I want to encourage you today. The person sitting next to you, the person that invited you, on your way out the door, meet somebody Just ask them if they would read the Bible with you. You'll be surprised. So now it's easy to point out the wrong in someone else's life, so Jesus makes it personal now. He asks in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And this time they get a right question, a right answer, but they got the wrong understanding. This was the first time Jesus asked his disciples this question directly. Ever since he rebuked the wind and said, peace be still to the sea, they asked and wondered to themselves, who then is that that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Peter now steps up, gives a great confession that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one of God, the chosen savior who came to rescue sinners. He got it. The revelation from Peter was nothing short of amazing. And to really appreciate and to understand that, you have to understand the context, see? In the history of Israel, there were three offices. There were prophets, priests, and kings. And all of them was recognized and affirmed by the anointing of oil. So when Christ came, he operated as prophet, the mouthpiece of God, as priest, as our final offering, and mediator, and as king from the line of David. Israel, during this time in their history, had this overemphasized understanding of Christ as king. This really began when they were taken into captivity in the Babylonians in 586 B.C., but then it peaked during their Roman occupation. So the expectancy was high. Jesus fit the bill, but something, something was missing. It's sort of like receiving a gag gift for Christmas, right? I'll never forget, I wanted this Street Fighter II video game told my brother I wanted it. He said he promised that he would give it to me. And um, one day we were sitting around his apartment in Brooklyn. You know, they was giving out the gifts, and I got the gift, and it had the package in, and I was slowly unwrapping it, excited that I was going to get the game. And when I opened it up, it was a rock. Yeah, I'm still feeling that too. (laughs) So the package looked good, but the present was disappointing. So you know his confession was not just from head knowledge or even from a pure experience with Jesus, but there had to be revelation from God because Jesus did not fit the bill that everyone was expecting. The parallel gospel in Matthew 16, Jesus states that flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Peter, but it was my Father who is in heaven. So why does Jesus ask these questions of who he is? It's because he wanted them to see that the world's ideas and their ideas were not really different. Now they may use good religious words to appear different, but at the core, they thought the very same way. And at this point in the narrative, they're still not awakened to the reality of who Jesus is. He has healed many, including those physically blind. But the nagging question is, can he heal their spiritual blindness? And in chapter 8, verse 17, Mark lets us know uh, these little clues here. He asks, Jesus asks his disciples, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And this is a question for us today. We have spiritual blind spots, either in our theology or in our practice. This is why doctrine matters, not for the sake of being puffed up with knowledge for the sake of knowledge's sake, but because wrong understanding leads to wrong application. So the thing about spiritual blindness is, first, it has to be revealed to you by God himself, and he does this through his word and by his spirit. So how should we think about Christ? Do we unintentionally follow the crowd? Do we follow our own selves? Do you have the right answers but lack understanding? The disciples did. And this is why in verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about himself. This is because the disciples wrestle with this otherworldly understanding of who Jesus actually is. And what he's trying to teach them is that what the Gentiles have testified about, what the demons have confessed, and what the Father himself has proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. But the missing element in the misunderstanding was not necessarily the person, but the work of Christ. So we see that as the plot thickens, we feel this rising conflict. And in verse 31 to 33, we see a new divine perspective of Jesus, the suffering son of man. In verse 31, we see the significance of what this means. In verse 32, we see Peter's reaction And in verse 33, we see Jesus' response. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus began to teach. Notice that he didn't condemn, but rather instructed them on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is another messianic clue, and it comes from the book of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So can you imagine during this time all the religious scholars trying to trace all these different clues together? Like, think about it. Have you ever tried to put together a thousand-piece puzzle? I mean, if that's not hard enough, imagine that without the box top, right? But Jesus is standing before them as a divine box top saying, the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the Messiah who rules as prophet, priest, and king is right before your eyes. And my way of leading is serving my crown is one of thorns, and the shameful cross is God's divine plan for your salvation. Amen. Come on, Pastor. This imagery combines in one person both human and divine traits. This image of this suffering Savior that is truly God and truly man begins to emerge. This is our Redeemer, the eternal Son of God in whom God became man and bore the penalty of our sin. He had to be truly human, why? Because in his human nature, as our substitute, he perfectly obeyed the whole law. And on the other hand, he suffered the punishment for our sin. And if that's not already good news, it gets better. He had to be truly God, why? Because only God himself can bear the penalty of the righteous wrath poured out against sin and then rise from the dead. Man, that's good news. Right? That is why Jesus uses the word must. This is the divine plan and will of God. It says he will suffer many things, physical things, mental things, emotional things, spiritual things, the beatings, the mockings, the shame, and the betrayal. It says he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And these are those who were supposed to confirm Jesus, but instead they ended up condemning him. And he must be killed. But not in any kind of death, but the death on a cross. The Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 21 states cursed is anyone who dies upon a tree. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He must be killed. And this is love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And after three days, he rose from the dead, demonstrating God's acceptance of Christ as our sacrificial lamb. And here's the beautiful thing. He calls us to respond, to turn from sin and turn to God in Christ for our forgiveness. This is a gift that is not earned, but received. For it is by grace that we're saved through faith. And this is not of our own. Doing it uh, is something that God gives us. It's a gift from God. When you think of the value of a Christmas gift, right, what determines the value? It's the person who gives it and how much the gift costs. So you think of the value of this gift of salvation in this way, that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The gift is free, but Jesus paid a price that could never be measured. We heard it read earlier, but I want you to hear with new and open ears the description in Isaiah 53 that Jesus connected with the suffering Son of Man and the Messiah. This King, this Christ, we hear this in uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah. I just want to touch the high points. It says, He had no form of majesty, He had no beauty. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He has bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was oppressed like a lamb led to the slaughter, afflicted, made his grave with the wicked, put him to grief crushed he poured out his soul to death bore the sin of many and lastly makes intercession for the transgressions who does that sound like verse 32 says he said this plainly there was no parables no hidden messages and in the ears of those disciples that beautiful message was absolutely scandalous And this is where Peter gives this reaction. He says in verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The parallel in Matthew 16 gives us a little bit more insight. He said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Oh, if Peter would know on the other side of the cross, if he had our vantage point, he would realize how satanic that comment really was. And here Jesus responds in verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. This is the climax, this is the crux of the issue, where the question about who do men say that I am and the comparison of who do you say that I am reveals the same self-centered, same self-promoting, and same selfish attitudes and motives of the world. The way of the crossless crown was the same tactic that Satan tempted Jesus with in the desert. This same temptation was now on the very lips of Peter. Family, the enemy of our souls can use those closest to us who mean well but do not represent God Let's look at this other divine, this last divine perspective. Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord to be obeyed, verse 34 to 38. And under that, you see two main points, the cost of discipleship in verse 34 and the incentives, verse 35 to 38. Let's look at the cost in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, and this is right after he he, he rebuked Peter, He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, parents and kids, you can relate to this, right? You know, right at that moment when you discipline your child, you got like that five minute and 35 second window, which I call that teachable moment, and you just have their complete and utter attention. It's like all of a sudden they can hear in stereo and see in 3D, right? So after Jesus rebukes Peter... Um, He calls the rest of the disciples and the crowd to himself, and he explains to them, not only is he the Christ, the son of God, not only is he the suffering son of man, but he's also the Lord to be followed and obeyed. See, these were going to be hard words in verse 34. They were getting ready to learn a two-part lesson on discipleship. See, it's one thing to know Jesus, but it's a whole other thing to commit to follow Jesus. If Christ is a cross-bearing Christ, then Christians will be cross-bearing Christians. And to be clear, it's not the way of us accomplishing our salvation, but it's a cost to discipleship. So as we continue in verse 34, he says, If anyone will come after me, one, let him deny himself, two, take up his cross, and three, follow me. And if Jesus is Lord, and he is, there are only two responses to his three commands— Yes and amen. Jesus being Lord means following him on his terms. And really when I hear these words, it reminds me of my time in the military. You know, I signed up just because I thought it was my ticket out the neighborhood. The uniforms were sharp. The benefits were great. And the recruiter said I would see the world. (laughs) Technically he wasn't lying. But somehow I missed the fine print. You know the part that says you now belong to Uncle Sam? Truly you are no longer your own. And if for any reason I was confused, boot camp had a way of renewing my mind. So in the same way, Jesus is letting them know that following him is going to require not just a new way of thinking, but a whole new way of acting. The Greek word for repent is metanoia, meaning a changed mind. And this was the message of John the Baptist when he preached. This was the message of Jesus when he preached. Change your mind. Change your way of thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's not what you have been thinking. We have to really put to rest this false way of thinking about Christianity, that when you become a follower of Jesus, there's no longer, uh, we no longer experience problems, that you can actually live your best life now. And because we tend to drift towards this thinking, we need to be redirected by the Lord. What Jesus is not saying is we should seek out pain as a means to an end. But what he is saying is following him will involve denying your preferences, denying privileges and comfort, and a taking up of your cross daily of enduring persecution, adversary, and a possible death. You see that in verse 34 where he says, deny yourself. It means to disown your agenda your self-confidence, your self-determination, not to rely on your own strength, trying to fill your own will and wishes. The perfect illustration of that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? Right before going to the cross, he prayed to the Father that this cup that he would have to drink would be taken away. But in the very next breath, he said, not my will, but your will be done. Are you willing to pray to the Lord, not my will, but your will be done? Regarding your career goals, regarding moving into the neighborhood, regarding your social life being uh, in Southeast for the sake of the gospel, praying this is the most freeing, but also the most frightening thing all at the same time. Especially if you've been trying to figure out things on your own. Tim Keller has a great quote on following Jesus in his book, Jesus the King. He said, if your agenda is the end and Jesus is the means, then you're using him. If your agenda is the end and Jesus is the means, then you're using him. You see, the disciples thought like the society in which they lived and they desired exactly what the world wanted. James and John's attitude is really highlighted in chapter 10 where It sums up all of the disciples' thinkings when they asked Jesus to let them sit at the right and the left hand of him in glory. They wanted special places of honor and power and prestige. And just like the world, they saw Jesus as a political pawn or some type of messianic magician. This wrong thinking needed correcting. His kingdom is not of this world. In his kingdom, those who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who desire to be great must become servant of all. The second part of the lesson in discipleship is taking up your cross. One scholar, F.F. Bruce, is quoted as saying, It was in the manner of his death, his death on the cross, that rock bottom of humiliation was reached. By the standards of the first century, no experience could be more loathsomely degrading than that. So, in other words, Jesus is saying that daily take up your instrument of torture and death, bearing its shame, and follow me. Take up being persecuted and spoken about in all kinds of evil falsely on Jesus' account, knowing that great is your reward in heaven. For so, as they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew five eleven. Now I had the opportunity to hear some amazing stories of God's grace and the lives of many different people. The persecuted church in Syria is facing many, many hardships. The rise of ISIS, the killing of Christians, the millions of refugees and displaced persons. And one story from Syria I heard was about a Christian mother who taught her children that if any bad guys come to our house and takes mommy or daddy away, I want you to look at them in the eye and tell them, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. She could teach her child in this way because she counted the cost and the incentives were far better. That Christ is worth more than this life. That our soul is priceless and the judge is coming soon. So incentive one, Christ is worth more than this life. You see that in verse 35, for whoever will seek his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So naturally, self doesn't want this. To say I want Jesus more than a shame-free life is beyond our natural capacities. Philippians 3.8 gives us greater clarity to this paradox of loss and gain when Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So, as believers, we see Christ as our ultimate treasure. He is our everything. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. What can you do with a Christian with that type of mindset? Incentive two, your soul is worth it. Verse 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for a soul? And this word for soul is psyche, meaning personhood or being. And what Jesus is saying is don't build your identity on your personhood on gaining things in this world. This is for sure countercultural, especially in our day where many see their source of joy in the things that they have. This affects every economic class, and it transcends race and gender. The world says you're nobody unless you have a six-figure job, a nice car, or a big house. Or in other contexts like ours, the high value is placed on reputation in a different way, like being respected for your skills with, with your hands or known for carrying guns. But what is it to be known for these things and in the end lose your soul? Just think about a couple of weeks ago, a student, Gerald Watson, 15-year-old, right here from Anacostia High School, he was gunned down and killed in Southeast Southeast over a beef between two different blocks. Someone felt violated. Somebody felt disrespected. And then they caught the killer recently, and he was a 16-year-old. Somehow he, in his mind, valued his identity, his reputation over the victim's soul. And growing up in the Bronx in the summer of 1998, the Locks had a song called Money, Power, and Respect. Oh, somebody (laughs) knows, somebody remembers that. (laughs) And the intro of the song summed up this exact depraved mindset of man. It says, first you get the money, then you get the power, and then you get the respect. But the question for you is, do you value your soul over the things of this world? When you follow... Jesus, your identity is now in Christ. And he says that your soul is so much more valuable than the world's riches or reputation. In sin of three, the judge is coming. In verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his father with the holy angels. Are you ashamed of the gospel message of the cross of Christ? Not the occasional lapses that we sometimes have in evangelism, but suffering by identifying with the crucified and resurrected Christ. To be ashamed of the cross and ashamed of Christ in his words is to reject the very means of our salvation. This was the big lesson the disciples needed to learn because how can you because how you view Christ determines how you follow Christ. Now the big question is, did Peter ever get it? Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, I believe this occasion was etched in his mind permanently. Listen to his words in 1 Peter 4.13. And the context is suffering as a Christian. 1 Peter 4.13 to 16, it says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. He says, Rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in God in that name. He got it. My prayer is that you all get it as well. This is our same hope as we await our soon coming king. But in the meantime, in this adulterous and sinful generation, let us be assured that the Christ, the son of God, the suffering son of man, is Lord of both heaven and earth. And in light of his resurrection and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, he has equipped us to do what we cannot do in our own strength and that is to unashamedly proclaim the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, that your word is powerful. We thank you, Lord, that your your word does the work. We pray, Lord, that seed was planted. We pray that seed was watered. We pray, God, that ultimately you would get the increase. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.